In all areas, the UK continues to backtrack. The European Union argues that, that we, be, we should be subject to rules of the club that we have left. The precondition is the level playing field. Uh, we can deliver a real Brexit that achieves our objectives. But if there is not a deal, we still need the Irish Protocol or the Northern Irish Protocol fully implemented. I'm going to miss being the pantomime villain. Hello and welcome to Brexit Republic, RTE's podcast on Brexit. I'm Tony Connolly, RTE's Europe editor in Brussels. And I'm Colm O'Mungine, RTE's deputy foreign editor, currently at home in Kildare. Each week, Brexit Republic brings you all the latest developments in Dublin, Brussels and London. This week, the controversial Northern Ireland Protocol Bill received its second reading in the House of Commons and passed comfortably with 295 votes in favour and 221 against. There was no rebellion on the Conservative benches, although 75 Tory MPs did abstain, notably the former Prime Minister Theresa May, who said the bill broke international law. We'll give you a flavour of that debate and Mrs May's intervention, and we'll explore why UK officials now believe the bill will become law much quicker than many have expected and what that will mean for EU-UK relations. And as the UK government continues to lambaste the protocol for having dire consequences for the people of Northern Ireland, the latest poll shows support for the protocol is growing, with caveats. We'll hear from Professor David Finnamore from Queen's University, Belfast. But I suppose first, Tony, let's give people a flavour of that debate, and the person who opened it was the Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, laying out the rationale, uh, ostensibly, for the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. Um, Foreign Secretary... Secretary Liz Truss to move the second reading. Madam Deputy Speaker, I beg to move that the bill be now read a second time. We are taking this action to uphold the Belfast Good Friday Agreement, which has brought peace and political stability to Northern Ireland. The Northern Ireland Protocol is undermining the functioning of the agreement and of power sharing. It has created fractures between East and West. It has diverted trade and meant people in Northern Ireland are being treated differently from people in Great Britain. It has weakened their economic rights. This has created a sense that parity of esteem between different parts of the community, an essential part of the agreement, has been damaged. This bill will address these political challenges and fix the practical problems the protocol has created. It avoids a hard border and protects the integrity of the UK and the EU single market. It is necessary because the growing issues in Northern Ireland, including on tax and on customs, are baked into the protocol itself. Our preference remains a negotiated solution and the bill contains a provision that allows for negotiated agreement. But the EU has ruled out, up front, making changes to the text of the protocol. Well, that was Liz Truss, the Foreign Secretary. Theresa May said that she did have the interests of the Good Friday Agreement at heart, but fundamentally disagreed with the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill based on a number of reasons. Let's hear from her. Thinking about this bill, I actually started off by asking myself three questions. First of all, do I consider this to be legal under international law? Second, will it achieve its aims? And third, does it at least maintain 
the standing of the United Kingdom in the eyes of the world? And my answer to all three of those questions is no. And that is even before we look at the extraordinarily sweeping powers that this bill would give to ministers. Now, the government's claim of legality, as we have heard, is based on the doctrine of necessity in international law. The government, as the Foreign Secretary said, has indeed published a legal position. And that describes this term necessity in the following way. The term necessity is used in international law to lawfully justify situations where the only way a state can safeguard an essential interest is the non-performance of another international obligation. The action taken may not seriously impair the essential interests of the other state and cannot be claimed where excluded by the relevant obligation or where the state invoking it has contributed to the situation of necessity. So let's examine this. First of all, it is claimed that it is the only way If the necessity argument is to hold, this must be the only way to achieve the government's desires. Yet the government's legal position paper itself accepts there are other ways. For example, it says the government's preference remains a negotiated outcome, which indeed was reiterated by the Foreign Secretary in her opening speech in this debate. It also acknowledges that there's another potential way to deal with this issue in the existence of Article 16. So the government's preferred option is negotiation, and then there's a second option, which is Article 16. Now, Article 16 is referred to in the legal position paper. We've heard the rationale from Liz Truss of needing to keep most people happy, or at least one section of the community happy with the Northern Ireland Protocol, and that's the reason the UK government says it needs to change it. Let's hear from the Democratic Unionist Party, the party, I suppose, most unhappy within Northern Ireland with the protocol, at least the one that has seats in the Northern Ireland Assembly uh, at any rate. Here's Geoffrey Donaldson, the party's leader. Madam Deputy Speaker, let me say this. Much of what will happen in the coming period in Northern Ireland will be shaped by the attitudes and decisions in this House. If this bill convincingly passes all of its common stages in its current form, and if the Government continues to develop the regulations required to bring to an end the harmful implementation of the protocol, then that would, of course, give substantially greater confidence that new arrangements are on the way, which in turn would provide a basis to take further steps to see the return of our local institutions. And therefore, I would appeal to members of this House who genuinely want to see the institutions restored up and running in Northern Ireland again to prioritise the interests of Northern Ireland over any narrower ideological reservations that may, they may have about this bill. And sitting through many speakers in the debate then was Claire Hanna, the SDLP MP. Let's hear from her. Claire Hanna. Thank you very much, Mr. Speaker. Um, this, these have been a frustrating and damaging few years for Northern Ireland, and this bill uh, adds to us. It's been bad for, for the economy, for businesses who need stability and not brinkmanship, and it's been bad for relationships in each of the agreement's three strands within Northern Ireland, North and South of Ireland, and between East and West. And more than that, 
This bill is being seen as part of the government's departure from the values of the Good Friday Agreement, from compromise, <coughs> from partnership and from the rule of law. It's recycling the same distortions and half-truths that the people of Northern Ireland have been listening to uh, for the last six or seven years of the Brexit debate. And there is still a failure to reconcile the, dilemma, the dilemmas that Brexit forces, the choices that the UK government have made with the reality of our geography. And there have been some truly mind-bending arguments put forth to justify this bill, that this bill is about consent and consensus, when in fact the majority of people in Northern Ireland have not consented to Brexit in any form, and while a majority of voters and MLAs reject this bill in the strongest possible terms, that it's about uh, protecting the Good Friday Agreement, while uh, the government across are in the middle of body slamming a cornerstone of that uh, Good Friday Agreement, and by people who we all saw scuttling away from castle buildings when the Good Friday Agreement was being forged, and people we all saw screaming in the windows in the first few years while we tried to implement that agreement. We've heard tonight uh, that it's about rights. Well, the women of Northern Ireland and the LGBT community of Northern Ireland and the minority ethnic community of Northern Ireland would like a word if it's truly about rights. We've heard uh, that it's about the alleged damage to our economy when every credible business organisation in Northern Ireland is calling for the retention of the protocol, when business after business is lauding the potential of dual market access, when Northern Ireland is the only region outside uh, of London in the UK that is managing to achieve uh, post-pandemic GDP growth. We're told that it's about uh, a democratic deficit and that's protested by removing the entirety of government from the people uh, of Northern Ireland and that's going to be solved by handing over uh, Henry VIII's powers um, that will allow uh, the government to, uh, to, to, to ride roughshod over everybody uh, in Northern Ireland. I'm old enough to remember when Brexit was supposed to be uh, about parliamentary sovereignty. We've been uh, promised that and promised uh, sunlit uplands but with the distortions people in Northern Ireland have experienced. We are getting uh, uh, gaslit uplands in Northern Ireland. There has been a cynical campaign for years uh, to distort the causes and effects of the protocol. So, Tony, a lengthy debate there on the second reading of the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill. We finished up there with Claire Hanna towards the end, sounding somewhat irate. Did that tone strike a chord with people in Brussels as they reacted to it where you're sitting? Yes, it did. Um, and I think there is just growing unease in Brussels about the direction of travel now with this bill making its merry way through the House of Commons um, and... As we've discussed in, in previous podcasts, the EU believes straight up that this is a breach of international law and a, and a grave breach, breach of trust. And Maros Shevchevich was making that point in a number of interventions this week um, that this breaks international law and it, it damages trust. And that's really the key for both parties to both implement what they've agreed in terms of the treaties they've agreed, but also for their future relationship. And it's interesting that both sides are laying claim to the the moral high ground on how the future EU-UK relationship could be uh, if the other side would only uh, abide by certain principles or demands uh, made by the other. Um, But I think what has struck me this week is that while there was a lot of talk a couple of weeks ago, well, this bill will take a year, maybe a year and a half to go through the Commons and then the Lords, and there could be loads of amendments, uh, and you know that that this 
year to 18 months would provide a window for negotiations. It seems now to me, just from talking to various people on the UK side, that it's going to go through the House of Commons a lot quicker. There just doesn't appear to be the appetite for any major rebellions on the Tory benches against the bill. We heard, of course, 75 abstentions on Monday, but but nobody from the Conservative Party voted against the bill, even though many people obviously believe that this bill breaches international law. And then the interesting thing, I think, as well, is that it seems now that the House of Lords is not really going to put up that much of a fight on this bill. Now, obviously, just to remind people of the the delicate balance of constitutional powers in the UK, the Commons is elected, the House of Lords isn't, so it's it's a fairly grave thing for the House of Lords to completely reject a bill in its entirety. So what they tend to do is to try to add on a lot of amendments and you get this ping pong between the Commons and the Lords. If the bill gets held up uh, for any length of time, the government can invoke the Parliament Act, which essentially forces the issue uh, and makes the bill law, but th- there can be a period of a year before it, it can come into effect. But it doesn't even look like the House of the, the UK government is going to have to go that far. Now, I think the, the House of Lords is going to try and get a bunch of amendments added to this. Uh, and if they go to the Commons and the government uh, rejects those amendments, it doesn't look like the Lords is going to put up much of a fight second time round. So that means people are now talking about this bill becoming law by the end of this year. So that would mean, you know, just pretty much uh, a bit over six months since it was introduced. Um, And that really does mean a a collision course. Although it would seem from um, his, his words at the G7 conference that Boris Johnson at least for the for the consumption of the domestic audience believes that uh, the the European countries don't think this is a big deal he was delighted to report that nobody had really mentioned it to him at the G7 meeting which was of course dominated by Ukraine and maybe that was the reason nobody had mentioned it to him but he seems to be uh, at least publicly to hold the view that this is a trivial matter that really doesn't bother his European friends and partners too much yes he he said that i mean that that's certainly is at odds with with what you hear in Brussels, not not just privately, but publicly. The the German ambassador to the EU was speaking at the EU UK forum uh, on uh, Thursday of this week. Yeah, we're recording on Friday, so this, this happened yesterday, and this was an on the record contribution from Michael Klaus, who is the German ambassador to the EU. He was being interviewed by Stephanie Bolzen from Die Welt, who we've had on the podcast before. She's a correspondent based in London, and he was effectively saying, look. Uh, you know, the the Northern Ireland Protocol was was a centrepiece to the Brexit withdrawal agreement, and breaching that is no small thing. And the member states are completely united behind Mara Shevchevich and the European Commission in saying that the EU will have all the weapons uh, at its disposal if it comes to the bill becoming law. Um, so, you know, attitudes have definitely hardened in in Europe and in Brussels at the bill itself in the first place. But obviously, if the bill is going to have quite a quick passage through the Commons and the Lords, then we will be getting into a confrontational situation uh, quite soon. Um, Now, there there were a couple of parliamentary delegations in Brussels this week talking to the Commission and talking to officials in in other member states. Um, 
And I managed to catch up with uh, Tom, tu- Tom Tuganat, who is the Conservative MP and chair of the influential House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee. He's also a big fan of the podcast, I should point out. He wanted us to say that, which is great <laughs> right, to hear. Okay. Um, Hi, Tom. But, um, but, <laughs> but we, I, I talked to Tom uh, on Wednesday morning about how he saw this bill's passage through the House of Commons. Talking to Tom Tuganat, uh, MP, who's chair of the Foreign Affairs Committee, who's in Brussels at the moment. Tom, nice to have you on Brexit Republic. Um, it's been a big week again. We've had the second reading of the bill. What's your assessment of the prospects for this bill becoming law, getting through the Commons and the Lords? What's the mood around it? Well, the mood certainly seems to be that uh, there isn't yet significant opposition, and though there may be amendments in the Lords, the reality is that I think the government probably has the ability to get this through without the Parliament Act. And so, depending on how the government decides to timetable it, this could be within a few months, maybe even less than a year. And the Parliament Act, can you just explain the significance of that? Sure, the Parliament Act is if the Lords object so much that for the third time, effectively, then the government can invoke what's called the Parliament Act, but that then takes a year from the day in which it's invoked to the day in which it it, it has an effect. And so that would delay, obviously, the, um, the bill getting royal assent. And that's why, whether or not the Lords see um, division in the Commons, and particularly, of course, on the Conservative benches in the Commons, would have such an important effect, because the more division, the more likely that the Lords would be to resist and resist and to force the Parliament Act, and the less division, consequentially, obviously, the less likelihood of the Parliament Act being needed. Because I think the prevailing wisdom here in Brussels and in Dublin was that this bill might take a year before it becomes law, and perhaps within that year you could, in a benign scenario, have a set of negotiations which could end up being fruitful and both sides could find a landing zone on the key issues. But from what you're saying, it sounds like the bill could become law uh, a lot sooner than, than a year. Look, it's up, to the, it's up to the government, really, to timetable legislation through the Commons, as you know. And there will be ways in which the Lords could delay, even if it doesn't uh, completely block the bill. So I wouldn't be, you know, I'm not going to give you a date for it, but it's certainly possible that this could be through um, by, the, by the autumn. Now, in some of the um, debate this week on, on the bill, uh, Theresa May, the former Prime Minister, said this, this is a breach of international law, um, but yet the, a large number of Tory MPs didn't vote against it. They, they abstained and the, and the first reading was passed uh, comfortably. Second reading. I beg your pardon. The second reading was passed comfortably. Um, like, how how do you assess the mood in in the House of Commons? Are they is, is there genuine disquiet about this, or is it is it likely not to face any real hurdles? Well, there is. I mean, people are talking about the fact that uh, obviously it, it, this is a treaty that the UK government, that Boris Johnson, signed. What is it? Only uh, only eighteen months or so ago, um, and so there are, of course, thoughts about that. But the you know, this isn't, uh, this isn't as for all of us, this isn't the only business that's going on uh, in Westminster today, and it's not the only business going on around the world, and there's a lot of focus on, on other issues as well. So this is, it is one of the things that is certainly being discussed, but I'd be, I'd be cautious about overstating it. And obviously the EU has reacted quite negatively to the bill, and although they haven't spelt it out, they have hinted quite strongly that there would be trade measures if the bill becomes law. Um, is, is that a threat which might cause some 
reflection in, in Westminster in, in Downing Street? I think um, there's a lot of reflection on how the EU is responding to this generally. Uh, and certainly some of the conversations that we've heard uh, you know, will be causing people to wonder what comes next. But I think the UK is also pretty adamant that, um, you know, the east-west border, as it's called, you know, the, the connection between Great Britain and Northern Ireland is maintained because it is quite clear that there are uh, issues within the uh, Northern Ireland community. And even, you know, even when you look at the 50 or so MLAs who signed that letter recently, even some of those who signed it have called for major changes within the protocol. So it's it's not even possible to say, oh, there's a majority in support of the protocol as is. That's not true. There may be a majority in support of a protocol, but not this protocol. Final question. The, the Commission has said, look, they, they have a set of proposals on the table from last October. They're prepared to be um, flexible as far as they can on making the protocol work. But essentially, they, they can't have that conversation with the UK if the UK is going off and unilaterally dismantling the agreement that they have signed together. Do you think there's any genuine sense that the UK would go back to negotiations with the Commission on the basis of, of the Commission's own proposals? Well, I think you'll have to ask the government that. I can't answer that one for you. Um, look, I think, I, I think there are many valid uh, comments by, by the UK on this. And, you know, when you look at, for example, the application of the Court of Justice of the EU, you know, that doesn't apply uh, on Switzerland, it doesn't apply on Turkey. You know, there are, there are comparators here which make people in the UK think, hang on a minute, this isn't quite the same proposal as is made, and surely there's a possibility of looking at different flexibilities. Now, I understand that Boris Johnson signed this deal, and I, I presume he read it before he signed it, um, and so there are, some, there are some issues there. But but the UK does have the right to the integrity of the UK as well, and there are, you know, these are issues that have to be discussed. And going back to, well, you signed the deal. Um, you know, the job of politicians is to fix problems, not to repeat them. Tom Tugendhat, thanks very much. Tom Tugendhat there, Chair of the House of Commons Foreign Affairs Committee, speaking to you, uh, Tony. The other part of this debate, of course, is what do people in Northern Ireland think of the protocol? Who have you been talking to and what did we learn? So the, uh, the there, there have been a series of polls carried out by the Queen's University Belfast uh, Brexit unit. They, that's a that's a team of academics who are set up to analyse the post-Brexit political landscape in Northern Ireland and the effect of the protocol. And they've been doing a lot of polling with uh, lucid talk. Now they've they're going to be doing nine polls altogether between 2021 and 2023, and this was the fifth poll. So it was about representative sample of about 1500 voters so that's a weighted sample um and it was carried out in in the first week of june so that was before the bill was uh, published but um but but after me obviously at a time when people knew what the bill was going to contain so i've been speaking to professor david finnamore of queen's university belfast about the findings I'm joined by Professor David Finnemore, who's the Professor of European Politics at Queen's University Belfast, and he's uh, leading a project on post-Brexit governance and the Northern Ireland Protocol, along uh, along with another, with other uh, prominent academics. Um, David, great to have you with us again on Brexit Republic. Be here, thank you. 
So we're here to talk about the latest opinion poll that your team has carried out in conjunction with Lucid Talk. So this, I think, is the fifth poll out of nine that you're doing all together between 2021 and 2023. Um, the survey was carried out in early June after the assembly elections, but before the UK published its protocol bill. But I think at that stage, everybody knew what was pretty much going to be in the bill. Um, just talk us through, first of all, the, the sample size and, and how you approach this kind of survey. The, the survey goes out through Lucid Talk to its online, um, online panel. Um, and we had around about 3,000 responses. And then what we what Lucid Talk did was took a weighted sample of what the 1,497 responses um, and so those are weighted to reflect all the demographic of the population in, in Northern Ireland, um, taking into consideration sort of age profile in terms of um, recent election results, et cetera. Okay, I think the headline uh, finding was that support for the protocol has increased um, from, I think, 47% a year ago up to about 55% today. Can you just talk us through what you think are the most salient findings? Yeah, I think what across the five polls we've had, this is the one which is once again sees the support for the protocol sort of edging up with sort of, I think it's about 55% of people seeing this as a, an appropriate set of arrangements for managing sort of the post-Brexit realities for, for Northern Ireland. We've got the same percentage sort of indicating that they think the current impact is positive on for the economy of Northern Ireland. But nevertheless, within that, we're still seeing very quite strong levels of concern around what the uh, impact is. So 38% disagree that it's providing an appropriate means for managing the post-Brexit um, realities for Northern Ireland. What we're also seeing is continuing levels of distrust in the UK government, um, trust in business representatives to represent the views of Northern Ireland. There's a slight increase in, in levels of trust in the political parties to manage Northern Ireland's interests but, and a decrease in, in distrust. Um, what we also interrogated was the extent to which people have serious concerns about the protocol. Uh, we asked this time um, to, for respondents to say, look, do you have concerns? 36% said none, um, but then 55% said that, okay, we do have concerns. Um, and within that, obviously, the, the biggest concern seems to be customs declarations on the movement of, of parcels, whereas uh, issues such as the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice um, is lower down their list. How many people are concerned about that particular issue? The the um, is it fifty five of the fifty five percent who have con concerns, I think it's about sixty seven percent have concerns about the customs declarations. Which when one, when one works that out, that's about thirty seven percent of the population have significant concerns about that okay. particular issue. And, and is is there a figure at all which reflects the level of concern about the European Court of Justice? Yes, we have got figures on that. That's um, slightly uh, lower. That of those fifty-five percent who have concerns, um, the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice was a concern for fifty-eight percent of those. So we're talking about around about probably about a third, quarter to a third of people have concerns about that particular issue. Okay, I mean, what does this tell you overall? Because this is what the the fifth of nine polls. Um, are we seeing a kind of retrenchment in Northern Ireland in terms of the protocol into fairly predictable sectarian blocks? You know, if, if you're if you're unionist, you're opposed. If you're nationalist, you're in favour. Or or is it more subtle than that? 
I think, okay, broadly speaking, when we when we look at the, the poll, we're seeing uh, the sort of forty percent, which is expressing serious concerns about it, probably being mainly with, within unionism. The, the, the polls in the past have indicated broader support amongst uh, uh, nationalists and those who, who don't identify as nationalists and unionists. And this is borne out by other polls that, we, that we've been seeing um, around. But I think what we're seeing over time is possibly because the, the uh, potential effects of the protocol aren't necessarily being fully seen because of the growth periods, etc. People having um, sort of a resigned acceptance to it, not necessarily an overly enthusiastic endorsement of, of the, the protocol. Um, I think also what we see is more discussion and uh, debate around about what the protocol means in, in practice and probably more nuanced understanding of it, such that when one looks across um, what people see as the current impact on, on the protocol, people are having slightly more positive views about it in terms of the economic impact, slightly more positive impact views about it in terms of does it protect the, the 98 agreement, does it um, maintain the conditions for North-South cooperation? But at the same time, you, you're still seeing quite considerable levels of concern about what it means for the political stability in Northern Ireland, what it means for UK-EU um, relations, what it means for British-Irish relations. Okay. Um, so, so that's coming through quite strongly. Okay, and is it clear that people are, um, shall we say, tempering their views of the protocol because because of that fact that it's not being fully implemented, you know, there, there are these grace periods that are still uh, in operation. Um, difficult to, to get behind exactly what pe people are thinking, but one of the constants we're seeing in, in the polls is that um, quite a clear majority are sort of saying, look, okay, this does create or can create opportunities for Northern Ireland if it's implemented uh, appropriately. And I think what we're also seeing coming through is okay, there are ongoing concerns about certain aspects of, 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 the, of the, the poll. We see in some of the um, written comments we receive to it, questions being raised about, okay, well, what does this mean for, for, for goods moving into Northern Ireland? Those issues need to be, to be resolved. So what we're also seeing is people maintaining quite a high level of um, understanding of what the protocol means. Um, and um from that um discerning what some of the key, the key key concerns are and i think those are reflected in the concerns which which, which are coming through i think we we're quite quite taken aback the number of people who, who said they, they hadn't got any concerns about the protocol which is 30 36 percent of people responded that way right they're obviously free and easy Possibly, yes. Um, but uh, but it, equally, across all the polls, it's the same issues have been, been raised um, before. So in the previous polls, medicines was always the highest issue. OK, um, most people now acknowledge, OK, well, they're, they're certainly aware of what the EU has, has um, brought in in terms of uh, uh, changes there to, 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 to maintain the supply. But then again, things like the customs declarations, the parcels questions, the, the issue of, of um uh, movement of pets about getting supplies of seeds etc in those are concerns for a significant proportion of, of of voters how has the reaction been on this occasion compared to previous polls given that the climate that we're in is dominated by the uk protocol bill which the uk government say is utterly essential to avoid a fairly dire situation emerging in Northern Ireland. Um, and they're accompanying that with uh, 
proclamations of, of real resistance and unhappiness with the protocol um, and that, that there's simply now a necessity for the UK to, to act unilaterally, this poll would seem to undermine that particular message. Yeah, I think what we're seeing and one of the strongest results that came through on, on the poll um, was about whether the, the UK should be taking unilateral action. 74% um, of the respondents indicated quite clearly that they would prefer there to be a negotiated EU UK solution to the outstanding issues around the protocol. I think that's a reflection of the fact that most people recognise that there are issues, but equally they want them resolved through dialogue um, and through, through negotiation, and that there's not a case at the moment for unilateral action on specifically whether there is... Um, whether the UK government would be justified in taking unilateral action, 57% of people say no. 38% um, said yes, the UK would be justified. Um, but then you, we then asked the question, okay, well, if the UK did take unilateral action, would the EU be um, justified in taking retaliatory action? And yeah, similar percentages there. 55% say, well, yes, if the UK takes action, the EU would be justified in doing so. 35% um, say, say, say it wouldn't. So I think what, what we're seeing there is a, a clear preference for negotiated outcome, probably around the issues which people are flagging in, in, the, um, in, in their responses, recognising that some of those issues which the UK government is putting forward as being of fundamental importance are not necessarily those which are the priority issues for people um, in, in Northern Ireland. That's not to say there aren't there isn't a significant section within society that is concerned about just the jurisdiction of the Court of Justice, but it's by no means a majority concern. Okay, so the um, obviously the the question is now if, if whether or not the UK and the EU can get back to the negotiating table, and certainly it feels from my vantage point in Brussels that that's going to be difficult because the EU is still feeling extremely angry and frustrated that the UK is going ahead down the the route of uh, unilateral legislation, and that legislation could certainly pass the Commons and the Lords perhaps sooner than people in Brussels think. Um, wh when is your next poll, and do you think you will have to address some of those issues in a post-Royal Assent scenario for the, for the bill? Well, the, the next poll we're planning to conduct in, in October, and then there'll be another one in early February. Um, so I'm sure one of those will capture um, at least the, the ongoing discussions, if not necessarily the outcome of, of the, um, the, the bill process. Um, but I think one of the things we're able to do with the poll, although we're asking a set of questions consistently across time, because that's what we're wanting to monitor, monitor we are able to adjust. So we'll be, hopefully be able to get some questions in there next time to sort of reflect where we are in, in this process. Um, but I think one of the, one of the, key, the, the, the key questions, I think, for a lot of people is, okay, well, how do you get the UK and the EU back together on this? Because, okay, the negotiated solution is something for which there is a clear majority would prefer. But um, at the moment, it, I agree with you, it's difficult to see how they're necessarily going to get, get together and, and pr provide some sort of solution. Great. Well, Professor David Finnemore, thanks so much again for joining us on Brexit Republic. Um, best of luck with the next uh, poll. Thank you. Yeah, fascinating stuff from David Finmore there. It'll be interesting to see what future polls from Lucid Talk uh, turn out and also what the analysis from uh, Queen's University, Belfast and others, yourself included, no doubt. Uh, Tony, having a look at, at those findings. Just in terms of going back to the Commons debate, Tony, the uh, parameters that Liz Truss seemed to be setting on future negotiations were saying that the UK government was prepared to have a negotiated solution with the uh, EU 
as long as the EU is prepared to change the text of the protocol uh, and as long as it landed roughly in the same zone of where the Northern Ireland Protocol Bill wanted to land. It doesn't seem actually based on that, that there is much room for negotiation. Is anything going on? There's not a huge amount going on, column. Now, I understand that there have been informal contacts between British officials and the European Commission um, in the aftermath of the bill, but there's certainly still an awful lot of anger on the EU side and a lot of talk about a trade war if the bill becomes law and how that might look. Um, as we've spoken about before in the podcast, those preparations for trade retaliation have been done by the European Commission in the past year to 18 months for for other during other flashpoints, shall we say. But, uh, you know, the, if, if you're looking for optimists, very few on very few on on the ground to be found but there there is i suppose the possibility that talks could get underway at the end of the summer september october perhaps there you know both sides could get back around the table um interestingly certainly according to british sources there they have been in touch with the commission about a new uh, data system that the UK has pulled together, which they are saying should comply with what the EU has been complaining about for the past 18 months, that the UK still hasn't given EU officials real-time uh, accurate data on what's coming into Northern Ireland from, from GB, um, because the, the EU needs to know what's coming in so they can assess the risk to the single market. And if they assess the risk to the single market, then they can say, well, we can go easy on checks in this field. We maybe need to be a bit more vigilant in that field uh, and so on. Now, British officials say they have a new system pulled together. It can give not real-time data, but data that is available to the EU 15 minutes after a ship leaves a port. So say a ship, a ferry leaves Stranraer heading to Larne. Um, within 15 minutes of the of the boat departing, then EU officials in in the ports could be getting access to that that data, and that this would be a, a big improvement. They say on, on what the EU has been getting so far. Now I haven't heard confirmation from Brussels on that, but that if it's true, that would be an indication that both sides are still engaging with each other at at, at a very technical level. Politically, it is going to be very, very hard for the European Union to enter talks with the UK while the bill is on its way to becoming law. I mean, this is seen straightforwardly as a gun on the table. How can you negotiate with another party when they are actively and openly legislating to dismantle what you've already negotiated and what the EU side believe is binding international law? Um, however, if there is a space and a willingness to negotiate, then, as we've talked about before, we know that both sides are relatively close to a landing zone on customs formalities. And the idea that you ha you can have a, an express lane for goods that are not at risk of crossing the border, according to the EU's calculations, or a green lane, which is part of Liz Truss's um, protocol bill idea, um, that, you know, th th there is a belief in Dublin and elsewhere, that, that there could potentially be a landing zone there. The problem is, once you get into the other issues of the protocol bill, which wants to strip out the European Court of Justice, it, it wants to 
get rid of EU competition law uh, and VAT law. There, there's so much more in the protocol bill that the EU just has no time for and say is a complete rewriting of the protocol, which they're still not able to do. Now, what it seems to me is that the, rather than renegotiate the protocol, the EU is saying we, we can change EU legislation here and there to make these flexibilities a lot more meaningful to companies and people. The UK is still saying that that's not enough, that there, the, the degree of checks and controls and formalities and bureaucracy and cost will still be enough to dissuade key traders in the UK from actually selling goods into the Northern Ireland market. Um, so, you know, I, I think, yes, of course, there are times in the past where, where both sides have managed to get back around the table after flashpoints and crises in relations. It seems to me that this time it's going to be very difficult, given that this bill seems to be sailing its way through the House of Commons uh, and the Lords and could become law before the end of the year. Now, if it becomes law, the question then is, um, does it switch off the protocol as is immediately? Does Do we need to wait for ministers to invoke the powers that the bill provides for? Um, I mean, UK officials are adamant, look, um, a Rubicon is crossed, you know, the bill is going to become law. And it's it's not like the UK has drawn up a bill and then ministers won't use the powers the bill gives them. Um, but what they are saying is, if both sides are very close to an agreement that they can both live with, then of course ministers would have the choice then not to uh, invoke the powers that the bill gives them. But of course there's no reverse gear in the bill. The UK would have to repeal it uh, to get rid of it altogether. All right. Well, uh, I suppose we'll have time to consider all of those implications over the summer because this is probably probably it from us for quite some weeks if not even a couple of months as we uh, have a break for the summer and indeed as as you've said there it looks like any progress on negotiations or anything else will be taking a break for the summer as well so for me Colm O'Mungoyn RT's Deputy Foreign Editor in Kildare hopefully my voice will have improved by the time we cast our next episode Yes I hope so too and from me Tony Connolly RT's Europe Editor in Brussels thanks as always for listening and have a good summer <laughs>